It was the dawn of the third age of podcasting, 30 years after the series had launched. The Babylon podcast was a dream given form. Its goal, to discuss the place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, home away from home for established fans, newbies, John, Blaine, and guests. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It can be a dangerous place. Wait, what? But it's our last, best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2024. The name of the podcast is... Babylon 5, 30 Years Later. Welcome to the latest episode of Babylon 5, 30 Years Later, where we discuss each episode of Babylon 5, 30 years after it was broadcast. By we, I mean myself, W. Blaine Dowler, and my partner here. Oh, that's me. I am John Wilson. Hello, everybody. Hello. Yes, I should have made it clear I was trying to let you introduce yourself there. Well, you know, I, I, I know how to do that. I can shake hands with all, all of the listeners and make, just line them up in a row and have them all wearing their uh, cultural traditional garb, and we'll just shake hands as we go down. Yes, we'll just need a very, very long hallway, I hope. <laughs> I guess that depends on how many listeners we have. But that's a little hint about what we're talking about today. Yes, we are talking about Season 1, Episode 5, The Parliament of Dreams, which was actually Episode 8 in the production order. It was written by J. Michael Straczynski, and it was directed by Jim Johnston, who we discussed when he directed Soul Hunter a few weeks ago. Now, this is an episode that actually has a number of new characters being introduced, some of which are recurring. And one of them is a replacement, or two of them, I guess, are replacements for other characters we, we thought were going to be recurring and ended up not being recurring. That is true. Yes. So running through this, you know, as listeners would know, we're now doing our summaries by plot thread. Unless this is your first episode, then you may not know that. In which case, welcome. But yes, when we're summarizing the episodes, we'll go like the A plot, the B plot, the C plot. I'm glad we have 26 letters in the alphabet because we have a lot of plots going on here. <laughs> I would say the A plot is in regards to Jakar, which starts with him getting a notice from someone who is now dead, whose legacy is to have them liquidate all of his assets, specifically to hire an assassin to kill Jakar. And it is someone close to him. So this is what he gets in a message from Tupari, a courier, Right before he's introduced to Natof, his new ambassadorial aide. So the aide that we met previously, that actress was not able to continue in the role due to a severe allergic reaction to the makeup. So Julie Kate Malone Brown is reintroduced, which works well for the plot, since she becomes suspect number one in his mind for the assassination, especially when they eventually tracked down the courier, and the courier says that he was hired by Natal's father, or given the message by Natal's father. We eventually learn that the courier is the actual assassin who was hired, and I say eventually it, it takes some time. Shakar goes to Nagrath, the insect crime boss, to hire a bodyguard who is very quickly killed in Shakar's quarters, and Natoth was there to tell him where he could find the body. But yeah, when we find out it is the courier, Natos shows up and claims that she is the backup that was hired and administers quite the beating to Jakar, which we learn was actually a ruse so that she could destroy the torture devices that were on him. And Jakar comes out and handles Tupari on his own, beats him but does not kill him. Instead, he allows him to live, sedates him past the deadline for the contract, and transfers a hefty sum of money into the courier's personal account so that the Assassin's Guild will assume that he broke their code, and the Assassins will kill him on their behalf. So it's not just simple vengeance, but a little bit of the torture that Jakar was put through. Jakar was to know pain, Jakar was to know fear, and then he was to die. So this is really what they turned around and did to the courier, who was also the Assassin. Now while this is going on, Commander Sinclair has two things going. Partly that Earth Alliance has said, well, let's have each of these different uh, alien species showcase their dominant religious beliefs. 
And while Commander Sinclair has to figure out how to demonstrate that for Earth, he runs into an old flame by accident. So this is not the woman he was with in the gathering, although this is the episode where they established that they split up because he wouldn't leave Babylon 5 to go into private business with her, as she was asked. Now, this is Catherine Sakai, who surveys planets and lets corporations know about the resources in exchange for a cut of the profits. Um, it's made fairly clear through their dialogue that, yeah, they have an on-again, off-again history that I think Sinclair describes as three parts passion, two parts teeth. <laughs> but they part ways eventually deciding they're going to try again. So Delenn runs the Minbari ceremony, which involves chants, bells, and exchanging of fruits, and longing looks, which apparently double as a marriage ceremony. So as Sakai says, depending on how seriously people took it, someone may have gotten married. And Sinclair jokes that he didn't know that uh, Londo was Jakar's type. <laughs> so speaking of Londo, he and Veer also host the Centauri ceremony early on, where we find out that there were actually two sentient species that developed on the Centauri homeworld, and that the Centauri basically hunted the Zon to extinction. So they are guilty of genocide, and they celebrate it as part of their religious beliefs. Uh, we also learn that they are a polytheistic religion. So they will have, you know, they've got a, a god of passion, a god of food, a god of front doors. And they say, gods for everything. When every day is a struggle, you need as many gods as you can get. So I think those are most of it. Outside of that ceremony, Delenn's new assistant, Lanier, comes, and he is instructed to not address her as Satai, and only as Delenn. But we again see that her role as Satai, which establishes her as the Great Council, is significant as she has to convince Lanier to look at her. He would not look up in her presence as it was not considered appropriate. And the final part of the ceremony, Sinclair finally settles on showing her his dominant belief by demonstrating that it doesn't really have a dominant belief. And they line up a series of representatives of many religions, and he just introduces them by name and belief in the closing tag with a camera that pans back through a very, very long line. And I think it is worth noting here that something that really blew Straczynski away in terms of Michael O'Hare's capability as an actor is that the script called for which religions would be introduced and in which order, but all the names are different because the easiest way to handle that and to give credits for the non-speaking roles for the extras that normally don't get credit, those are the real names of the people there. The actual actors, not character names? Yeah, and they're not even really actors. They are all people of that faith. So when they start with Mr. Harris, an atheist, that is an atheist named Harris. So the only thing that was really specified in the script is the order their religions are represented, and it was very important to Shazinski to have a Muslim and an Orthodox Jew side by side. Mm. And the thing that blew him away with Michael O'Hare is that they ran down the line, and they weren't sure how long the shot was going to be. So they went through at least the first 30 people in that line, and they introduced themselves by name and faith. And Michael O'Hare only had to go have them go through it twice before he had every name memorized. Wow. With the faith. So yes, those are actual representatives of that faith who were asked to come dressed in their traditional garb. So I wanted to point that out. And then uh, finally, just to point out the three new recurring roles that we have. Natoth is played by Julie Caitlin Brown, who has 25 acting credits that date up to 2013, including Jag, Sliders, a couple incarnations of Star Trek. So she's had a lot of guest roles, but not a lot of starring roles. And she is now also a talent agent who represents people who are, you know, working with Stargate SG-1 and things like that. Julia Nixon plays Catherine Sakai, and she is still active. Her most recent credit is from 2020 at the time of this recording, which is well in advance, but she does have things in pre- and post-production. And even the stuff in pre-production may be out by the time you hear this podcast, because that's our lead time. <laughs> and finally, probably, I would say the most recognizable face on the show to date, at least without his makeup, would be Bill Moomy as Lanier, 
who I would confidently say is best known for playing Will Robinson in the original Lost in Space from 1965. Yes. And he, it's worth pointing out, he has been on the credits all season so far, right? Uh, yeah, he has been in there, I think, credit only since, obviously not in The Gathering, but I think since Midnight on the Firing Line. Yeah, so even though he's only showing up here in the fifth episode, like his role has been planned, and whatever his contract was, he was he's, he's a series regular. He's just a series regular who missed the first four episodes. Yes, and now with his acting credits, I've been spoiled on the new Netflix Lost in Space, which I had not watched yet. Oh. <laughs> that is a very unfortunate spoiler. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. We watched uh, we watched the first couple episodes of Lost in Space, uh, the family and I, and we really enjoyed it. It's just uh, my wife doesn't tend to, or ex-wife doesn't tend to gravitate towards science fiction. So we didn't really stick with it, but everyone enjoyed it. Yeah, I've heard very good things about it, and... Yeah, knowing, seeing the name that he plays and the way it's phrased, I really wish I had no idea that was coming. So I will not name it in this recording, but I will say, if you haven't gotten to it yet, go now, watch. (laughs) I haven't seen it, I've heard good things, but this is the kind of thing where you really want to to have it revealed on screen and not as I just had it revealed to me. Oh, well. I would say he's also well-known for his guest spots in the original and 2002 Twilight Zone, where he plays Anthony Fremont in both series. So he played two different characters in two different episodes of the original Twilight Zone, and the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street was probably the one he's best known for, as the boy who would make people go out to the cornfield. So he was the the boy who was the monster, well-parodied. And then in the 2002 reboot, he plays the same character who's now trying to cope with his own child, who has the same power. Wow. All right. Well, yeah, as, uh, whenever they said, this is Lanier, I was like, finally! Because I've, I've known that name was there, and I've seen that face in the credits and stuff for the show. I was like, when is Bill Mooney going to show up as Lanier? So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, it's also interesting, because reading the script level, I don't know why they did it. Maybe it was actor availability or something like that. But his introduction appeared in an earlier script and now that we're recording but i can't for the life of me remember which one but one of straczynski's scripts had this plot thread and then it got cut from the final episode for time and then it was put in here instead i can see that happening makes sense so this whole week to celebrate everyone's faith the way it's described in the opening scene I can't remember the exact phrasings to to recite it here on the show, but just the way they describe it, it's almost like all the other weeks people are discouraged from exercising their dominant faith. So, because it's like, this is just the one week where they're encouraged to do so. I didn't realize at the beginning of the episode that that was going to be like, it's more like a festival celebration, kind of, you know, cultural pride week. Yeah, I think part of that is because it was introduced through uh, Garibaldi. Mm-hmm. And it, it's that in that scene where his view is not as much excitement about it because the first time we see him interacting with it is when he's explaining to someone, I don't care if it's ceremonial, you cannot bring this knife on board the station. <laughs> so he's got his the security side of things to deal with. Yeah. And this is also where we get more reinforcement of the idea that he and Sinclair have been friends for a long time because he recognizes Catherine immediately. And it's been three years-ish since they saw each other last. Yeah. And he is warning Sinclair, she's on the station. And I think it's interesting that, you know, he's like, I'm not sure if you want to see her or not. So he gives him the option to see her or avoid her. And even though Sinclair says, no, I don't want to see her. Thanks for letting me know. Later on in the Centauri ceremony, Sinclair says, okay, where is she? And Garibaldi knows, even though that's not where she was the first time. Yeah. So he had been keeping tabs. It's obvious from their interaction, even in that first scene, that Sinclair is a lot more interested and invested than his words are letting on. And even asks, you know, is she with anyone? So there's still that connection in his mind. Yeah, and it's made clear in the dialogue. They know they're not good for each other, but that doesn't mean they're going to 
stop trying. Let's talk about their dialogue for a second. Because as I was watching this a second time just before recording, I was thinking, you know, this feels a little stylized and a little stilted and a little novel prosy. And yet I found it still working for me. It was kind of like a Casablanca style of interactions between the two of them. Just a little bit, you know, a little bit more purple in the prose than people would normally talk. But yet it was still engaging and in some places emotionally affecting. Yeah, I found it was, I like it because it's setting up a relationship that we often don't see, right? There's, you don't see people who know a relationship is unhealthy and going back to it in a drama in a lot of cases, unless that's what your entire story is about. The drama, right. Yeah. And I think here, the tone you're talking about is, I, I think it's there because it has to be expositional to say, okay, now this is his, you know, this is the old flame. She was around longer than the one from the gathering and they explain why the one from the gathering is not here to focus on Catherine. So I think that's it is to set it up. But then it also lets us do the in joke where they talk about how, yeah, we go through the routine. You ask about my aunt. I ask about your brother. We do all this. And then we end up in bed together, but we're not going to let that happen this time. And then in moment of tension, it's, how's your aunt? How's your brother? Oh, we're going too fast. We skipped the academy thing. But that was a really good moment because that was in this like, we are doing this, aren't we? And it's just like the, the walls that they had up really started to fall right there. Yeah. Or when Catherine comes to him to celebrate her large commission mm -hmm. and then she's leaving because it's not working and he grabs her arm because he doesn't want her to leave. And her response isn't just don't touch me. It's don't touch me unless you mean it. Right. Yeah, that was very, very good. Yeah, so I am, I'm, yeah, I'm actually quite happy with how they introduced Catherine here. I thought it really worked. And, you know, as you pointed out, she, as a character, is sort of filling a role in the storyline that Carolyn was going to fill. But A, they're very different characters. Even just from the two interactions we've seen, these relationships are very different. The women are very different. It's not just putting a new name and a face on basically the same storyline, which is such an easy thing to do when you have to recast or refill a role is just make it the same thing with a different person. But, you know, I said this whenever they replace the doctor, it's not the same kind of person. And also the, the B I was going to say is acknowledging the previous relationship, acknowledging the acknowledging that is part of the story and part of the narrative. I just, Really, really appreciated both of those things. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, you'll notice that their jobs, when you say it's a different person, but she will fill the same role in the story because both jobs involve travel mm -hmm. to alien uh, star systems. Uh, so okay. one of the things, uh, part of this is going to be, I was going to bring it up in giving form to the dream, but one of the things that JMS hates about a lot of relationships on TV is that the lead character's love interest doesn't have their own story and they exist just to serve them. To do another comparison to Deep Space Nine, that was a huge issue I had with Keiko. Right. Aside from that one season finale when she was going head to head with Kai Wen when she was teaching the school on the station. Vedic Wen, but yes. Yeah, right. She was still a Vedic at that point. But yeah, aside from that, that one episode largely Keiko's story is to service Miles O'Brien's story mm -hmm. and not to have her own story. Keiko O'Brien is Miles O'Brien's wife. That's like, that's like, that's her. Yes. Sorry. No, I'm just say that that's her role in the story. She is just Miles O'Brien's wife. Yeah. For a large part of it. Like I said, with that one season finale, which was an excellent episode, mm -hmm. like that, that's a good showcase for Rosalind Chow as an actress as well. With that one exception, that's largely her role. And Janice, at this point, he didn't know that was coming because he was planning this before those episodes had aired. So this could not have been in response to Keiko specifically, but in response to the style of character that that Keiko fits in. A lot of these are the, the spouses. Like Another example, just thinking because John and I are both teachers in our day jobs. Welcome back, Cotter. Mr. Carter's wife is often there to help him process what's happening at the school, but should she ever have a storyline that didn't involve helping him process what's happening at the school? <laughs> I don't know how much you've seen of Greatest American Hero, early 80s 
uh, superhero sort of action comedy. And um, yeah, I watched it when it was on the air from when it was four till six, and vaguely remember that. And then have, I'm partway through season two on my DVD rewatch, but that's been stalled for a few years. I'm also partly through season two on my <laughs> first watch because I didn't watch it when it was on, except for like you know occasionally. But his uh, girlfriend in the first season has a character, has storylines, contributes in meaningful ways. And when they get to the second season, it's almost like they know what they're going to focus on. And it's the two main guys. And she's just there to, you know, serve as, you know, the female love interest person. It doesn't really, she doesn't get as chance as much chance to be a person. Yeah. One of the reasons that it only lasted three seasons and the third is short is because there was a lot of tension between the series creators and the studios where the studios want more cut and dry archetype trope cliche stuff fighting the sewer monsters and the creators wanted to actually say something and do something different so but that was the early 80s so different time different not as much awareness and thought yeah and also the the idea then was to keep every series episodic and appeal to the lowest common denominator to potentially maximize your ratings so Our first view of Jakar in this episode is his preparing food and singing like romantic ditties, earth English romantic ditties while preparing his meal. And I was like, this is, this is a weird side of Jakar that I wasn't expecting to see. Yeah, we're starting to expand Jakar a little bit. That's also one of the very few scenes where an actor got away with breaking Straczynski's typically very strict, absolutely no ad-libbing rule. Mm. Because a lot of the dialogue is meant to resonate with wordplay he had planned seasons from now, so they couldn't change his words or they could break the foreshadowing. The ad-libbing he was allowed to do is because some of the food he's preparing is live. I noticed that on the second viewing, when he holds up the little uh, crawdads or shrimps or whatever they are and like talks to them, Mm -hmm. whenever he sets them down on the table, he says, you stay there because the door is ringing. And I saw the little antennas twitching. It's like, those guys are alive. Yeah. Yes. The the line is, stay put. That's the ad lib because that crawfish kept running away (laughs) (laughs) while they were doing the takes. And have to reset, because by the time he came back to the table, his food wasn't there anymore. <laughs> Which leads into the progression when people ask uh, JMS what's your, what he thought was the funniest moment from season one. He says the one that he doesn't, that he loved that he didn't see people talking about was when someone says, are you Ambassador Jakar? And his response is, these are Ambassador Jakar's quarters. This is Ambassador Jakar's table. This is Ambassador Jakar's dinner. What part of this progression escapes you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good line. But speaking of Jakar, okay, so I thought he was supposed to be the bad guy in this show, and it has been multiple episodes now since he's even been antagonistic. Yeah, we that's what I mean. We're seeing some depth to Jakar. I will point out, when we saw him as the antagonist, it wasn't as clear in The Gathering, but Midnight on the Firing Line, he was the antagonist to hurt the Centauri specifically. Right. So that's where most of his antagonism that we've seen so far is actually driven by is to hurt the people who hurt his people. So he, he comes off as an archetype in the pilot, but he's really not fulfilling that archetype. And it's like there are going to be some cultural personality conflicts between him and Sinclair and between him and the Centauri and maybe between him and the other ambassadors. But other than just being a guy that you may or may not really enjoy associating with, he just seems to be a guy. He's not the bad guy. He's not Gold Ducat, you know? Mm-hmm. That is one thing that JMS will do with this series. When he knows where he wants people to be long-term, he has recognized that if you start with, take elements of their personality that might fit a cliche, but aren't where they're going to be in the long term. And you show that cliche first, then it'll keep the audience off guard as you start to move away from it and really show depth. So we are going to be seeing more of that with multiple characters as we go, including some characters we haven't met yet. Of course, my brain always keys in on languages and names and stuff. And I noticed that there's a minor difference in pronunciation of Shakar's name, even when he's talking to other 
other members of the Narn Empire, because he says his own name as Jakar, but the person he's talking to on the vid screen says Jakar, which is a very common sound replacement in English, because we don't have Mm -hmm. any native words that start with the J sound, so everybody says J at the beginning of everything, like genre, people say genre, but I had thought that maybe every one of the same species would pronounce it similarly, but I guess that was... um, ethnocentric of me because people within a species always pronounce things differently and some of that could be on the production end because in the first script of the gathering jakar was pronounced or was spelled j-a-k-a-r-r mm-hmm. so straczynski was pronouncing it as jakar as the guy in the vid screen did here uh, durag i think are you sure straczynski was pronouncing it that way or he just spelled it that way he was spelling it and pronouncing it that way. And it was Andreas Katsoulis who first pronounced it Jakar. And Straczynski said, you're pronouncing it Jakar to ask him why he was pronouncing it that way. And Katsoulis says, yes, I've decided he's French. <laughs> so that Straczynski works. changed the official pronunciation to make the actor comfortable. That's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was what it was. And apparently Katsoulis was a very interesting guy with kind of a Zen Buddhist attitude to life that made him a little unpredictable in a very fun way. Sounds great. I I knew we were expecting a new Narn aide. So when Tapari walked in, I thought he was going to be the new Narn aide. But then we meet Natoth. And honestly, in this one episode, I like her as a character so much more than Kudath or whatever her name was. She just seems to have more sides to her. And it was pretty great. Yeah, she comes in a little more flushed out, and I suspect that the original aid would have been flushed out a little bit here, but I, the switch up, I think, is good for the show in the long term, and it was definitely better for this episode to have someone new, especially when they write out the old one by having Jakar mention that, you know, the, the previous aide had a mysterious accident in the airlock. Mm. So, you know... It, in this case, when you're talking about possibly assassins, well, that seems like the kind of thing an assassin would do to be the one to get close. And is that just fueling the mystery for this episode? Or is that a giving form to the dream point where we should pay attention to the fact that his previous episode was assassinated? His previous aid. I, yeah, I do not recall coming back to that. So I don't know if okay. it was an accident or not. So if they come back to it. It's been a while since I watched it. I'm trying to read ahead in the scripts to have the pointers, but it might just be further ahead. You can't remember every detail of all five seasons? Come on. Why are we even doing the show? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I know. There there might be others who are screaming at their podcatchers right now going, but what about? But I won't claim perfection. Like I said, I don't claim great expertise. I've just, that was my level of familiarity. I've seen it all once when the DVDs first came out and was excited by a chance to rewatch. And that's what this is giving me. Yes. So. In terms of reading the scripts, I am up to TKO. I have read that one. And I've watched up through the uh, mid-season break in The Sky Full of Stars, which is three episodes ahead of this. Okay. Which, I don't think I said this on the show. I know that you and I talked about it. Whenever I said previously in this podcast that I had seen the entire first season, I'm pretty sure I was misremembering. I don't think I've seen past and The Sky Full of Stars. I think that is as far as I've seen. So I should probably stop watching ahead uh, and just let things happen as they happen. Yeah, I think that's probably good because you are not far from the point when... So when I was watching this show the first time, there's an episode you haven't reached yet, which was the one that made me realize that the ongoing story arc is not just about Sinclair and the hole in his mind. Mm. So you've seen that, but there's another one coming up not long after that where two characters bump into each other in the hallway and have a conversation. And I was going, wait a minute, this could be fuel for a fire. Well, and the sky full of stars has a nice mid season finale before mid season finales were really a standard part of television. It has that good feel to it. So in my brain and in my memory, that was a season finale and I made it through the entire first season. So it's just a mistake on my part. Well, that, that's okay. We will, I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about well, when they we compare that to the actual season finale. <laughs> so I wrote down a note in my first watch of this that I did not notice in the second watch. Was there a character or a place named Morgoth? Not 
Okay, then not that I recall. Must not have been very prominent. Then it may have been just something randomly said in passing. There's something, some reference in the episode somewhere to the character, to the name Morgoth, that I was like, oh, is that named after the big bad from Middle Earth's first age? But it was probably nothing of consequence. It might, have, if there was, it probably would have been in the conversation with Catherine Sakai. Okay. And her other business people, but she gets rich in this episode. Yes, or, you know, maybe not retirement rich. Right. But a really nice payday. Yes. Enough to celebrate and buy all the expensive things on the station. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the different ceremonies. Uh, I liked that the Centauri ceremony was, really brings out sort of a hedonistic side of their culture or of their history. They They pay so much attention to status and appearance and propriety that to have a part of their culture where they were able to just like give in and let all that set aside for a minute felt good. Yeah. And it is, it's definitely a very different tone from the Minbari ceremony. <laughs> yeah. If you were walking through the, the station and you were able to join either one and didn't know that there was a religious aspect to everything, just, you know, which room would you rather hang out in? I can imagine a lot of young people heading right for the Centauri. So that was, you know, a lot of wine, a lot of song. Ivanova really seemed to be getting into it. I was thinking about that too. To do this. Yeah, her role in this episode is pretty limited, but, you know, the actor gets to play her different ways when she's on duty versus off duty. And this was definitely off duty Ivanova coming out. Yep. And uh, this is also one that was su- the surprise to a lot of the the cast members. Because there's a point where Alondo is showing people the, the statues of their gods. And in the script, he crawls over the table and then walks down pointing to the statues from behind. And he pulled JMS and Jim Johnston aside and said, is it okay if I just stay on the table and crawl across it right in front of them? <laughs> and they did that and got it all in the first take. So when you're seeing, particularly Mira Furlan's reaction, because she was not expecting it, that's her actual reaction as he is crawling across the table, putting hands in the food and... All of us going through the various gods before he becomes one with his inner self, a.k.a. passes out. Right. And Delenn is very cute, and also Garibaldi is cute in an annoying sort of way. Yes. I like the uh, equal gender opportunity romantic flatteries. Let's see. Let's talk about that. I'm blanking on their culture, their species. Delenn's group. The Minbari? The Minbari. Let's talk about the Minbari ceremony for a moment. Because I felt that was, when it was playing out, it felt a little portentous because of all the eye contact between Delenn and Sinclair and such. And, you know, and so it begins after he eats the fruit. And then at the end, it comes back that it might have been a bit of a wedding ceremony. So I'm guessing this is something we should think about. Yeah. Do you want to skip ahead to the game? Oh, yeah. We should, we should. And skip over Last Best Hope? No, we should. We should. We should talk about that in a minute. You're right. You're right. You're right. And we talked about the ending scene, which that ending scene. Where, you know, they're doing the earth cultures. It stuck out in my brain, uh, you know, over the years between when I first tried to watch this and we're doing it for the podcast. That was one of the things I remembered very vividly. Uh, it's just, it it's remarkably poignant and such a simple idea. They're just shaking hands with members of different cultures, different belief systems, different branches of earth humanity. And... You know, I, I came away from that episode the first time just, you know, JMS had this nice ecumenical approach to the quote-unquote dominant belief system of Earth. Just like, it's all dominant. It's everybody. Yeah, he is very much an atheist these days. He was raised on, he was raised very stringent and for a while joined a cult because of a particular girl who was a member of that cult. As you do. Now he is, yeah, now he is an atheist, but he is also very, very strongly in support of religious freedoms. Mm-hmm. And this is a sign of that. And this is something that was known. We've mentioned before how they were filming in a factory that was miles from anywhere. It was not particularly near the studio. So it was a good hour's drive to get there from the studio, further from that from any residential space. And that allowed them to have the freedom because the studio heads would rarely come to visit the set. 
unlike the ones that are filmed on site where they will just drop in randomly almost on a daily basis. Apparently there were about 12 people from the studio here the day they were filming that shot because they wanted to be there and see this on that day. Mm. They knew that this is going to be something. And some of them credit the way that scene was written as how they knew that this show was going to be something special. Because a lot of sci-fi, especially stuff set this far in the future, it's either utopia or dystopia. And Babylon 5 is the rare middle ground. Mm -hmm. And they are very often written as universally atheist. I mean, that's... If Gene Roddenberry had been on set for the original Star Trek every day, that's how the original Star Trek would have been done, as universally atheist. But he was actually very, very mad when they had a one episode where Kirk says, yeah, we, we don't need Greek gods. We find the one to be quite sufficient. Roddenberry was mad that the producers from the studio made them put that line in there to the one sufficient to button that scene before they left. Right, because it puts, yeah. So that that's the attitude, and Straczynski is looking at it going, why would that get wiped out? There's individual religions may rise and fall, but the diversity of religion on Earth, if anything, grows over time. Mm -hmm. So there's... He's looking at history going, there's no evidence to support the idea that we're going to be one religion in the future. Right. And I think he's right. Barring the possibility of an extreme holy war, I don't see how we're going to get there. And even after that extreme holy war where there's only one religion left, I think it's only a matter of time before other variations crop up. Yeah. Because that's happened before. <laughs> mm -hmm. And because some people who lead religions aren't doing it for the right reasons and they like the power and control it gives them. So they will find a way to put a variation on the theme to have their own following. Right. Right. If they cannot be the Pope or equivalent, you know, top dog in whatever religion is already there. But yeah, it was a really great final scene. You know, we, we've, the few hints we've had about earth culture have been not great. You know, what's going on back on earth. And so to see this just, you know, celebrating humanity and all of its colors and flavors was pretty great. Overall, this episode, after, well, Born of the Purple was pretty solid, but Infection was kind of middle, and I was not as keen on Soul Hunter as I think maybe you were, but this was, this was a highlight of the season so far. Okay, well, for context, looking ahead, looking at the fan reaction and the IMDb scores, Soul Hunter and Infection are two of the five lowest rated episodes of the entire series. <laughs> okay. So it, it happens. Yeah. So uh, the lowest rated episode of the series is in season one. And after that, for those bottom five, we have these, there's three in season one, one in season three, and one in season five. And every episode we have seen so far in the long-term statistics is below average. Every episode we've seen so far in the long run is below average for the series. Wow. Okay. I can believe that because even though like, you know, The Gathering and Men on the Fire and the Line and, you know, Born, those are all, you know, enjoyable watches and they're decent episodes. They're not like, oh, I must watch more of this show kind of episodes. They've, they've been good in the contest we've done so far. But, um, but yeah, I might even put this episode on the top so far. Yeah, I think this is a very strong, and it probably is the strongest we have seen to date, at least of those that we have discussed. But yeah, I wouldn't say it's the strongest of this season, and what we have coming up, there, there's huge swaths of episodes, consecutive episodes, that are stronger in isolation or together than what we've seen so far. This is a series where season one is a lot of world building, and we'll get to it when we get to Crusade, but one of the lessons that JMS learned from this before going into Crusade is that season one here, he felt had too much world building. So it was hard to build the audience it should have had. Mm. And he should have done more of the long-term story before that. Because there are bits of it. I don't know. Do we want to get to the last best hope and the move to giving form to the dream to talk about what is coming up? Yeah, I think I've talked about everything in front of this episode I want to talk about. Okay. So what was your standout character or a character moment in this episode? I'm going to give the last best hope to Julia Nixon's eyes. When she and Sinclair are talking, she has this like really penetrating way of looking at him that like, I don't know, it was just, 
I'm missing the right adjective. Captivating is not right, but it was, anyways, yes, very, very great interactions between the two of them. And a lot of that for me was just the way she was looking like into him while they were talking. I can see that. Yeah, she's very engaging. I was actually thinking about this to be, I guess, talking about how attractive a woman is can be just considered immediately sexist. But if we could dip into that for a moment, I think Julian Nixon is in that that perfect zone where she is attractive enough, largely because of those eyes, but she's attractive enough that I will believe any character, right? If they've got it written in the script that a character walks in the room, sees her and says, I need to know this person. Mm-hmm. She's attractive enough, I will believe it, but not so attractive that she could build an acting career just on looks. She actually has to be a good actress as well. She's not quite at that point where she'll get the role just to be looked at, which I think is kind of the, the, the perfect zone for an actress to be in. I'm not sure how many actresses go after roles just to be looked at, but they may be sometimes cast by other people to have them just be looked at. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know anyone. Yeah, I don't know anyone who wants to do that. But a lot of the model turned actress types, it's like, yeah, if you didn't have a model look, you wouldn't be getting this actress job either. Yeah. See, I, I can see that. For me, the moment that stands out, it, it's tough. Part of it is, there's one line, one of the la- Londo's last lines before passing out when he says, but in purple, I'm stunning. Didn't grab me watching it, but it's when JMS talks about how, you know, he put that in carefully because, you know, purple is the color of royalty. Mm-hmm. And that's how Londo sees himself at his heart. And that that was a, a big character moment. But the one that gets me on its own without reading the JMS commentary is Jakar not being the, the super bad guy we'd expect by killing the assassin himself, but setting him up to let the League kill him and to make him feel that fear that Jakar felt for the two days. Yes. When he, he was thinking, you know, and even the way they do it, because they knew that the assassin's instructions were he used to know pain, he used to know fear, and then he will die. And then when Jakar and Natal tell him, yeah, your time limit has expired, so they're not going to come after me, but they will come after you for the embarrassment especially since I put a lot of money in your personal account. And as they're loading him up on the transport saying, okay, this is your ride. You will know fear. You will know, or you will know pain. You will know fear. And then you will die. Goodbye. (laughs) Bon voyage. (laughs) Just his style, the way he handled that. I really enjoyed. With Londo saying the thing about purple, purple equating with royalty is one of those things that just, you know, is in my brain. So I thought about that, but also since we'd had the title born to the purple, which was an episode that dealt a lot with place and society and everything. I realized that that was a meaning to that color for that culture. So I did think about that whenever he said that in purple, I'm glorious. Now I don't know everything about his background. So exactly what kind of, you know, royalty or high up status he could have, should have, would have, but yeah, that connection was there. Yeah. Uh, and the, the exact quote is, but in purple, I'm stunning, which sorry, it just, it's not glorious. It's I'm stunning. And it, Part of the reason that sticks out is because, as people know, I've been reading the script books. Jamie's released a lot of books related to Babylon 5. And the book that's just Babylon 5 quotes is titled, But in Purple, I'm Stunned. <laughs> One of the things I really loved about, oh, I'm forgetting her name, the new aide, is it Natoth? Yeah, they pronounce it Natoth here. Natoth. But I think it does eventually morph into Natoth. Another kind of connection there. The One of the things I liked about her performance is that whenever she... Whenever Jakar is in the pain giver manacle and collar getup and she comes in and starts beating on him, I guessed that it might be a ploy, but you are not given any sort of comfort in that idea. Like she is, it could easily go either way in that moment. Either she has betrayed him or she is helping him betray the other guy. Yeah, they did a really good job of setting her up as a red herring to the point that even when she's in that room, like you said, it, it may or may not have been the ploy when she was saying, yeah, I'm your backup. It was entirely plausible. And yet when she reveals that, oh no, she was just smashing the pain givers, that was it. And I also like the fact that that was her goal to smash the pain givers. And then she just let Jakar take over from there. She kind of knew what was going to happen and she just stood back and watched mm-hmm. and let him administer the beating. And on the one hand, that's kind of her role. She is the aide. So she does her job in getting him, you know, to where he can do his job. That's sort of her her role. But yeah, so 
Those are our last best hopes for this episode. Let's talk about this dream that we're giving form to. All right. So we have Catherine Sakai's job where she surveys planets. Mm -hmm. So she checks out previously unexplored worlds to see what's on them. This is going to come back. You talked about the Mimbari ceremony. When this episode was produced, that absolutely fell into this category. Production realities meant that the plans for that moment have changed. Okay. I think I know what you're... I'm guessing the ramifications for this were intended to come a bit longer down the road. And then when they got to longer down the road, they no longer had those options. In ways I'm not going to specify on the microphone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know one of our previous... In one of our previous episodes, we let something slip that did not come out in broadcast so we could stay first listener and first viewer friendly. Gotcha. But yeah, there are production realities that changed some of it, but they might have been able to, or they kind of capitalized on it to do something different with it, which we will be talking about. And then another point that it's more a notable thing. Shakar was so preoccupied with the assassin, we have not yet seen the dominant Narn religion. Oh, you're right. They did not get a spotlight. No. So we will learn more about the non-religious beliefs. Okay. And this is what I will say. The other element, it's not a huge world-building thing. It's very easy to miss. If I hadn't been reading the scripts, I would have missed it, even on the rewatch. But when we have the statues of the Centauri gods, Mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing where you'd expect you know, the production crew to, or the prop making department to kind of have a fairly free hand in designing it. There are certain elements of one of those gods that were very clearly specified in the script that only reading it, how specified it was in the script, I realized, oh yeah, that is a part of the Centauri culture that we do see again. Okay. When we see it again, it will be introduced as though it's being introduced for the first time, but this was handled to maintain consistency with something we're going to see. Gotcha. So yes, some of those statue design choices are not random. Okay. Okay. Well, that's interesting. We also did not see the religious beliefs of the fifth planet. The guy who's the Vorlons. Vorlons. Of course, he wasn't even the episode at all, but no, Kosh is very private. That's if anything, that's the, the giving form to the dream we've seen because we've seen so little of Kosh. When we see Kosh, it's big. Right. That's something that's going to come down the road. So the fact that we haven't seen him in these minor things actually is a bit of a tip-off about what it takes to get Kosh and the Vorlons directly involved. He's like a Watu. When he shows up, it's big stuff going down. Yeah, except he doesn't claim. Well, yeah. The non-interference, I was going to say. I mean, he hasn't been interfering much. He's just kind of living, doing his thing in his, his gas bedroom. Yep. And to be fair, if the first day I was on the station, someone tried to kill me, I might kind of hide <laughs> the safety of my bedroom for a while, too. Fair point. Fair point. All right. So I guess that wraps us up for the Parliament of Dreams. Yeah, that wraps up Parliament of Dreams. So our next up will be Mind War, which is going to be one of the episodes where it is the most difficult to not talk about Star Trek. <laughs> I think we may have brought up Star Trek at least once in every episode so far. Um, I, I, was, I was conscious of it today because I don't want to. I don't want to, you know, always be comparing negatively to Deep Space Nine. But, but yes, Mind War. Looking forward to that. Uh, yes, and it's um, here. It's because of a guest star, yes, who thankfully is still with us, and we hope he will be with us for a very, very long time. But when the inevitable obituary comes, they will quite possibly list Star Trek before Babylon 5, even though he will appear more than once. Gotcha. That's the kind of thing. It's, you know, it's actually Patrick Stewart who said, you know, when people are at, asked him in interviews, he's been Professor X, he's done with Shakespeare, and yet he's still known as Patrick Stewart. And he's like, oh yeah, when my eventually obituary comes, they will say, Patrick Stewart of Star Trek The Next Generation, and I am totally okay with that. All right, so... If listeners would like to get in touch and have feedback right on the air, you can send email to Babylon5 30 years later using letters or numerals. Babylon5 30 years later at gmail.com. The at gmail.com is an important piece. <laughs> I should not have left that out. 
You can also leave comments on the website where this is hosted at johnreadscomics.com, which is one of its homes. You can leave comments there. Uh, yes, bureau42.com is the other home uh, online where you can leave comments. Also, if you would like to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcatcher is, we greatly appreciate it. That helps when people find the show. It says nice things about it, hopefully nice things. And if you do leave a review that's not an Apple Podcasts, uh, feel free to let us know by email or comment just so we can acknowledge and thank you for it. Because we there are so many podcatchers these days, it's hard to watch them all. Uh, this is true. And you can also leave comments on YouTube if you are listening that way. They may not appear immediately. We've got the anti-spam moderation rules in effect. But as long as you're not out there trying to sell knockoff Oakleys or something, we'll approve the comment. All right. And the Zocalo, what is our podcast advert going to be? I don't think we've decided that, but it'll be something great that we hope our listeners will truly enjoy. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, be back here next week then, everyone. Yes, back for Mind War, which originally aired on March 2nd, 1994. Oh, and as a note, because that's March 2nd, 2024, when that podcast comes out, 2024 is a leap year. 1994 is not. So the new episodes in your feed will shift from Friday to Saturday because we're sticking 30 years later to the date. Important point. So we're no longer a Friday show after today. We are now a Saturday show. Yes, and we will remain a Saturday show um, for quite some time until 2025 when Babylon 5 moved from Wednesdays to Mondays. Okay. Then we will bump back to Thursdays for a time, and then we will shift to Wednesdays because 1996 was a leap year and 2026 is not. <laughs> All right. So, Wibbly wobbly calendar wallander. Uh, yep. And then we'll start jumping around again when the movies start running with, and also when season five hits because the schedule's changed again. So, yeah, you will, we'll always let you know when you can hear us next. Okay. But for now, we will talk to you in a week and a day. Yes. So, good eating to you. And thanks for listening. Hello. Blaine here again. With all of our talk of Bill Moomy and his time on the Twilight Zone today, it seemed like a good week to drop in a promo for the Twilight Zone podcast hosted by Tom Elliott. It's a Rondo award-winning podcast, one of my favorite TV podcasts out there, but it doesn't appear as though Tom has put together a trailer. So instead, I'm just recording a little infomercial, I guess, about it. So the web home is thetwilightzonepodcast.com. Again, the host is Tom Elliott. At the time of this recording, in August of 2022, Tom is early in his coverage of Season 5 out of 5 of the original Twilight Zone. His release schedule is a little bit unpredictable because he's a busy man who takes his time to make sure that the episodes are the best they can possibly be. So sometimes they're a couple weeks apart, sometimes they're several months apart, but they are always worth waiting for. So that's the Twilight Zone podcast, hosted by Tom Elliott, which is in pretty much all the podcatchers out there. So please go check it out.